Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. No, no, stop. Please, please stop. Please stop. You know it's going to be a great episode when Jason starts it by singing. Uh, <laughs> by singing a lot, really. Oh, I was I just think. waiting for you to cut me off, as usual. I I didn't I didn't know that that was I would have cut you off earlier if I knew that was how it was gonna, it was going to end. So <laughs> what is happening? Well, <laughs> you know, Josh, as we know, I try to come up with something that's relevant to the movie. And uh, I mean, I had like words I could have used to express something, but this movie does not use words to express anything. So I felt this True. was more in Fair. tune with what we were doing today. True. And why would you use words on a podcast? That's just silly. <laughs> so um, what's happening here in this season of Awesome Movie Year? We are talking about the films of 1992. And we're here at our documentary episode to talk about Ron Frick's Indeed Wordless film or dialogue free film, at least Baraka, which is certainly, as I think I said in the uh, at the end of last episode, uh, the kind of film that we've never talked about before. And uh, regardless of uh, where we end up on this, I always think it's exciting when we can sort of take a, a journey as much as like this film takes you on to to an area of cinema that we have not yet really addressed. And uh, that is the abstract experimental cinema, which is has a long history. But this film is a is a pioneering version of that is a movie that certainly, if nothing else, brought this kind of approach to a much wider audience than it really had ever been been exposed to it before, I think. Uh, I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Jason has nothing to offer here. <laughs> no, I sing some more. Maybe I'm just saying, like, in 1992, I wasn't like, finally, this is uh, breaking through this form. I mean, I watched Brackage movies in college. I'm guessing you did as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That was my first kind of uh, entree into this style. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to say that I, in 1992, was uh, a big fan of experimental cinema. Of course, I did not see this movie in 1992 when I was 12, nor did I even probably know that it existed. Although I was, in 1992, a big viewer of Siskel and Ebert. So it's possible that I saw them talk about it. But no, I didn't see this movie. But I think for adult audiences that were engaged with cinema, but maybe wouldn't have watched Stan Brackage short films at like MoMA or something. Um, this is a movie that made it out to like IMAX theaters and museums and things like that, where wider audiences would have had a chance to see it than would have watched experimental films prior to this. Oh, this would look amazing on an IMAX, no doubt. Yes, it would. It would indeed. And it's a shame that none of us were able to see it that way. Um, but it was certainly... Uh, presented uh, Ron Frick, who is the director and cinematographer of this film, previously had made two uh, short films that were specifically for the IMAX format that certainly, you know, back in the day when IMAX was just something that was in like museums and science centers and things like that and not 
something for Marvel movies. Uh, he made the movies Kronos and Sacred Sight that take similar approaches, I think, to showing you images from uh, places around the world. And that those were both in the 1980s and that helped him build up to making this feature film version of that with uh with baraka and and josh also he uh was the director of photography for uh i'm gonna butcher this one but i'm gonna try my best uh koyani squatsi by godfrey reggio which was kind of the precursor to this film as well yeah kayana i can't pronounce it either but uh godfrey reggio's three films that all the the quatsi trilogy have a similar approach and Frick did work on that first one. And I think the second one in the series had already come out before Baraka, but so yeah, he's, he's not uh, inventing necessarily this format, but he's, he's working in a tradition and he's creating a version of it that I think, I mean, maybe it's weird to call this movie accessible, but is more accessible than perhaps other abstract experimental cinema that came before it. Well, you know, he didn't invent the form, but he did invent a specific camera to capture the time-lapse footage and the use of technology um, to show the natural wonders of the world is really something unique. Yeah, I mean, how many movies have we talked about where the director literally invented the camera <laughs> that he used to shoot the movie? I think probably one or not two. any others. We did yeah, one or two. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we have talked about like uh, special effects artists, I think, who invented processes, maybe like Doug Trumbull working on Star Wars or something like that. But certainly quite uh, quite an achievement technically as well for uh, for Rod Frick here. And I, I don't know the you know Wikipedia says this movie grossed one point three million dollars on its two million dollar budget. I don't know where those grosses are exactly from. If it opened in a lot of traditional theaters, if those grosses would include things like IMAX theaters and museums. But I, I think this is a movie that obviously wasn't meant to be a blockbuster, and the fact that it could make one point three million dollars at all in nineteen ninety two is still pretty good, even if it didn't make back its budget. So uh, people went to see this movie. Um, more so than any other of this kind. Uh, yeah, you would, you know, between the reviews and the word of mouth and also, as we've said, the kind of world of independent cinema exploding during this time, it's nice that people are going out and, and, and uh, expanding their horizons, Josh, with the help of Ron Frick. Right, with the help of Ron Frick and, and with the help of people like Siskel and Ebert who devoted time on their nationally syndicated TV show to talking about a movie like this, they gave it two thumbs up and were both very, very enthused. And Roger Ebert talked about how this movie had shown him how his perspective on the world, even as someone who travels a lot, was so limited and it made him feel closer to his fellow man. And of course, Ebert is known for, you know, talking about movies as empathy machines. And, yeah. and that's that's the kind of perspective that you would expect from Roger Ebert. Um, in his review, he said, on one level, the film is a 96-minute travelogue. On another level, it is a meditation on the planet. Of course, there is a, quote, message somewhere in Baraka, the same message we have heard before about how man must love and respect the planet. This is a piety to which we all subscribe, so long as it does not mean any inconvenience to us personally. And few people seeing Baraka will make any major changes in their lives to respect the planet the movie celebrates. I include myself among that number. So the movie has the power of a dream, 
from which we awaken instead of a warning to which we respond. Uh, this is the quote I got from Ebert. If man sends another voyager to the distant stars and it can carry only one film on board, that film might be Baraka. Yeah, that's, I think, from his later assessment when he put it in his uh, his great movies book. And he only gave it three out of four stars initially. So my guess is he he sort of improved his impression of it over time. But I mean, I think he's right that there is sort of a message here. But I don't think I think this this movie, which is just essentially a montage of uh, of scenes from different countries and 24 different countries on six continents is where this was shot, could easily be more heavy handed. You know, the the way that it presents I- environmental uh, elements and factories and things like that. And, and I don't think it really is that there is a message you can get, but there's a version of this that would have been a lot more like hitting you over the head with, Hey, pay attention to what we're doing to the planet. I don't think that's what this is doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, Josh, because like when I was watching this, I was like, man, how do you even put this together as an editor? Right. And make it make sense. And you know, one of the strengths is the music from Michael Stearns. Um, and they really, whether you like the movie or not, it's really incredibly well crafted. Yeah, it is amazing to think of the amount of effort that goes into shooting this around the world. Again, the fact that Ron Frick had to invent a new camera to shoot this movie. And then I, I didn't see anywhere if there's statistics on, you know, how much footage did they shoot? Versus the 96 oh. minutes that we end up with. Well, I'm sure it's a huge, huge amount. They shot for 14 months in 24 countries and six continents. So, yeah, I would say so. Right. I mean, and as I think we've talked about in other documentary episodes, even more traditional documentaries often end up with so much footage that they have to pare down. And something like this, yeah, the, the editing process must have been, I don't know how long it took, but uh, must have been a, an incredible ordeal. And it's it's amazing what they end up with and that it flows. I think this movie flows really well. It doesn't feel choppy or anything like that. Well, as interesting as that uh, is, you know, this is the first film to ever be restored and scanned into 8K. And at the time of them doing it, there was only one scanner in the world that could transfer film to 8K. And it ran like nonstop for, I don't know if it was 15 days or whatever it was, some ridiculous amount of time to transfer all of this. And it had to run 24 hours a day to do it. And if this is, you know, this is the movie to do that with, I think this movie looks beautiful. And as we're saying, we didn't get to see it in IMAX or in a theater at all. And I'm sure this is a movie that is revived in, I think I going on Letterboxd, there was obviously some sort of 70 millimeter revival of it in LA not that long ago, because there's a bunch of people posting about seeing it there. And uh, but even watching it at home, and I think uh, I watched a, an older DVD of this, and it still looked beautiful. And I know Jason and Dave, you guys were able to watch the 8K restoration on Dave's uh, Blu-ray that he has, and I'm sure that looks gorgeous, even just on a TV at home. Yeah, it looks amazing. I think that's what I mean is whether you like it or not. It's it's not it's not just beautiful, but the way he crafts these images is is so thought out and stunning. It's um, it's a unique thing. It is. It is. So Hal Hinson in the Washington Post was also even more so than Ebert, I think, just blown away by this film. He said, watching Baraka, a nonverbal symphony of exquisite images, you experience a feeling of intense empowerment. As one spectacular image follows another, nearly every one lucid and sharp and magnificent, you feel as if you can go anywhere and see anything. 
Baraka isn't a calendar-pretty travelogue running through a program of the planet's greatest hits. The creators of Baraka have ambitious motives. They are interested not in character or narrative or even instruction. They choose to focus on the emotions we feel in response to the images, to the specific people, places, and fantastic things that are there in front of us. They've assembled their images as a kind of guided meditation, as they have called it, created for the purpose of examining man's relationship to the eternal. Right. And I like that idea of it as a meditation, that you could almost like put this on and zone out in a way, and that's not a bad thing. Right. And Ron Frick said his, uh, what he does, all of his theme is humanity's relationship to the eternal. So um, that's echoing that. Baraka is a Sufi concept that means blessing, essence, and breath. So I think you're seeing all of those themes come out here as well. Right. And I think, you know, again, what, what, what Hal Hinson is saying here is that this isn't a movie about a message about environmentalism or whatever that Ebert was sort of emphasizing more so, that this is about, it is about feeling, and in part because it doesn't tell you where you are or what you're seeing, that all you can really get is the emotion of it rather than the specifics like, oh, here we are in this place and this is what it is and this is who these people are and this is why they're doing what they're doing. You just kind of let it wash over you. Josh, as with other things we've covered in 1992, there might have been a problem with the environment, but man being such a thoughtful creature has fixed all of those things because they know they care about future generations more than things like money or short-sighted gains and whatnot. So, so, so true. Exactly. You should have saved that for the legacy. Yeah, then, exactly. The, the legacy of this movie, movie is that we have restored yeah. the environment <laughs> and created harmony amongst all people. Thanks. It to seems to be, uh, we've talked about these things a lot in 1992 about all these problems that could have been that art was talking about and that, uh, we have done a truly horrible job of, uh, you know, trying to rectify. Indeed. Indeed we have. I'm sure Ron Frick is horrified. So not everyone loved this. Uh, Pamela Bruce in the Austin Chronicle was less enthused. She said, although Frick's film does force the viewer to think, it mostly comes across as a work that borrows heavily from Godfrey Reggio's Koyana Squatsi and Powakwatsi with respect to stylization. Heavy use of time-lapse and slow-motion photography, as well as repetitive shots, can be tedious and ponderous, giving the film the look and feel of an epic, high-dollar television commercial. Unfortunately, Frick meant this film to be seen by the masses, yet it is not for everyone. Only the intellectual set would probably find a measure of entertainment in it. You, you know, I can't, I can't fault the criticism because... It's t uh, I, on the one hand, you're right. It's a meditation. If you can really get into it for an hour and a half, that's amazing. On the other hand, it's so easy to zone out. You could watch it for five minutes. Go make yourself a bagel. Come back. Go go play a board game. Come back. Go call your grandma. Come back. Are you calling your grandma go. to say, Grandma, I'm watching this amazing movie. You should check it out. <laughs> I'm just saying I could see both reactions to this, and I think they're both valid. Yeah, no, I, I think you're not wrong about that. But I, I do think, you know, when she talks about it looking like a, a, a TV commercial, there certainly are commercials that look like this and things where it's like, 
the world is a small place and that's why we use American Express or something like that, you know? Um, <laughs> but I think to his credit is that it's, it's, it's a fine line between something like that that feels pandering and something like that, that like this that doesn't, that it feels like there is a sense of wonder to it and you get the grandeur of, of humanity and the earth and whatever. So, I mean, obviously it didn't work for her and I'm sure it doesn't work for everyone, but I also think it's a little condescending to be like, oh, the masses wouldn't get this. Like, it's beautiful. What is there? Like, if, if that's all you get from it is that it's beautiful, then I think that's enough. And I don't see why people couldn't, any, any person couldn't get that. Dave, Josh is now defending the masses and talking about the grandeur of humanity. Who is this person? <laughs> what What is happening here? Yeah. Well, I, I think to go to the idea of the masses enjoying this, um, I, I know from uh, from Dave's letterbox that uh, Dave's initial experience with this and uh, other Ron Frick projects was certainly the kind of lowbrow experience that we might imagine for this, which is to get really stoned and watch this. Correct, Dave? Oh, yeah. That, that might not movies. be lowbrow. Now you're insulting the masses, assuming that Dave was not enhancing his mind by these activities. I, I, I would even say Ron Frick may have been partaking while filming these segments. So, you know. that That is possible. <laughs> so when did you, were you introduced to this movie, Dave, as like a thing for stoners? Kind of, yeah. Actually, I was introduced by by Gina. She knew Koyana Stocksy and uh, and this one. Um, and then after we went back and we watched Kronos, and uh, and then when Samsara came out, we saw that too. All high, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's a yeah. bad influence on you, Dave. Well, and certainly, yeah. again, you know, looking at Letterbox or whatever, you're not the only one who mentions being high while seeing this film. So, uh, for yeah. sure. Um, Jason, had you seen this before? Nope. I had, I had known of Samsara, but I didn't really know much about this. As I told you, I knew Braggage and we watched some other stuff, uh, in going back in different documentary years that kind of relate to this style. But, uh, no, this was a new experience for me. And, uh, Dave's wife did not get me high. Although last time I was at the house, she was doing meth. So I don't know. <laughs> She's really moved, moved on, leveled up there. Uh, oh, for, hopefully Gina doesn't listen to this episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had not seen this either. I, I had seen Samsara, which is the sequel, I guess you could call it, the next film that Ron Frick made in 2011. And I did not get to see that in a theater. I remember getting uh, like an award screener of it. And it was kind of, you know, it was an acclaimed movie from that year and thinking I should watch this. And then also thinking... I don't think I will appreciate it and being sort of pleasantly surprised watching that film that I was actually really engaged for the entire time. And I felt that way too. I feel like, yeah, you could end up zoning out and you could find it tedious or boring and maybe you have to be in the right mentality and not be tired or whatever while watching it. But I feel like there, I was really drawn in for pretty much the whole time to this film. And I felt that way uh, about Samsara as well. And, and I've seen some other experimental things that maybe we'll talk about later, but I, I'm far from an expert on this sort of film. Well, at least you're finally willing to admit that. Well, that's why I think mm -hmm. it's exciting to, to explore. I was, I was hoping to maybe watch a couple other things uh, related before we did this episode, but I didn't have a chance to do so. But I have seen Samsara, and, and I would recommend it, Jason, if, you've, if you got something out of this experience, to, to check that one out as well. It's Josh, Ron Frick makes this movie so people like you can slow down and appreciate beauty and the wonder of this earth and instead of going and watching more things like this 
you got caught up in the everyday hustle and bustle. You anti-frick this one, Josh. That's true. I mm-hmm. I was too busy working and going up and down escalators to in your factory in job. my factory job <laughs> making to watch cigarettes, more, watch more experimental films. But uh, I would I would like to. So, uh, do you want to mention anything else on the background of this film, Jason? No, no, Josh, I've mentioned so many things about the background of this. I don't even think there is anything more to mention in the background. All right. Well, we'll come back then to talk about more of our general thoughts on Baraka. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about our documentary pick, Ron Frick's Baraka, which, uh, as we've said, is a is a kind of movie that we haven't talked about before. It's an experimental, non-narrative film. There's no narration. There's no dialogue. There's no on-screen titles telling you what you're seeing. It is simply images and music and occasional diegetic sound. We do hear sometimes, especially in the uh, parts that are showing religious ceremonies, we hear chanting and things like that. But overall, Nothing that is, you know, in, in, intelligible to the average viewer, I don't think. Josh, you know, in the last segment, you were talking about how you were able to really get this experience with it. What, what did you learn about humanity, Josh? What insights to the world can you now give us that you did not have before Baraka? I mean, I wasn't saying that I learned anything per se. I just think I, I was engaged with the experience and I was appreciating the images. And, and like I was saying before, I think you can really just watch this movie and think, that it's beautiful. And that is a valid interpretation of the film. I'm not saying, you know, much like Roger Ebert, who, who says, uh, people won't come out of this film making changes to, the, to their lives. And I include myself in that number. I'm with Roger Ebert sure. on that level. I'm not making changes in my life inspired by this film, but it is beautiful. And, you know, it is nice to be reminded of the range of experience. And I think this is a movie that doesn't you know, it doesn't make a heavy handed message. You don't come away from it thinking, oh, humanity is doomed. You think that there's a lot of beauty and a lot of things that we don't experience in our everyday lives that are going on all the time. And, you know, that's kind of amazing. But back to you needing to make changes in your life. Where should we start with that? I think maybe I need to stop doing this podcast. Let's start there. (laughs) Um, You know, on the one hand, yes, Josh, there's a ton of beauty out there. On the other hand, we're ruining it every single day uh, as humanity. And I I feel like this one day when humans have figured out how to live in like Elysium space colonies and whatnot, they can go back and watch and say, see all this nice stuff we had. We really screwed the pooch on that planet, didn't we? Yeah, maybe the uh, the inhabitants of that uh, cruise thing in Wally are all sitting in their little uh, space chairs watching Baraka. Josh, uh, I did. You mentioned like those religious chantings. That one segment was so uh, enthralling and interesting. Where it must have been a hundred different uh, men. And they were split up, uh, you know, almost right down the middle symmetrically in a semicircle. And they were chanting things. I had no idea what it was. Um, I had never heard anything like it and how musical and rhythmic and how, you know, there was one or two of the men who would like lead the different sections and how they knew to go from place to place. It was 
um, which included like, I don't want to say, I mean, you know, it, it did include choreography. There was some movement there that was uh, obviously uh, dictated by the, by the chance that was, that was something right there. Yeah, that was amazing. They're doing it's all these like sort of waving hand motions that they do in in synchronicity like that, and and that is amazing to watch. And I think one of the cool things that that Ron Frick does in this film is that he shows you something like that. That, like you said, we don't know what the hell that is, and not just you and me, but the vast majority of the viewers of this film will not know what that is. And but he intersperses that with religious ceremonies that we're more likely to be familiar with. With uh, Jews praying at the, what is it, the Wailing Wall or whatever, and with Catholics in the Vatican and with Buddhist monks and things that we as Western viewers would much be much more likely to recognize. And that I think shows the continuity of all of this is religious devotion. All of this is religious ceremony and it's all kind of on the same level. Was there any part of you that would have been like, oh, if I had a DVD, it would be cool to have an alternate cut where like it just had the label of <laughs> where each thing was? I wouldn't have minded to learn where each thing was taking place. I guess not, but I think that, I mean, I'm sure you can find, it does, you know, the, the end credits of this movie list all the locations right. where they shot. Um, and I'm sure there are ways to go online and find an annotated breakdown of where everything is in this film. It's certainly a well-known and popular enough film that someone would have done that. But I feel like that could take you out of the experience, that the point that, that obviously it's on purpose that there are no title cards here, that easily Ron Frick could have thrown that in and he decided not to because it's meant to be this immersive experience and it's not meant for you to stop every few seconds and think, okay, this is in Israel, this is in Hong Kong, this is in Arizona, whatever. Like maybe you recognize some of those places and maybe you don't, but it's all the continuity of the world and of humanity. Well, I have a few questions for Dave, Josh. So if you want to go call your grandma, now's the time. I'm going to tell her to watch this movie. Mm. Dave, question one. Uh, you've seen this before. What is the repeat view like as opposed to the first time? view? Well, first of all, I was under the influence last time. So and, and also it was over like 10 years ago. But one thing that I found interesting this time around, and I don't I don't really recall if I felt this way last time or not, but you know, obviously there, there's, you know, the very loose thread of what we're doing to the planet here, you know, going on, but I found some of the factory stuff and like the, the more man-made elements just as fascinating as the more human stuff. Like it just, it's very cool and like cinematic. It's very just interesting and fascinating and beautiful to see, even if it's part of, you know, that destructive nature. Yeah, there's a rhythm to life and, um, you know, the way we look at like ants or bees in that hive mind and the rhythm to humanity. You get that here. Sure. Um, Dave, you've seen so many of these other movies, though. Does this do any of them stand out or do you feel like this is one continuous piece? It does feel like one continuous piece. I, I remember back in the day when we started watching these as Koyanistoxy was my favorite of the bunch. Um, I kind of want to rewatch it one of these days and see how it holds up and if it still feels like the best of the bunch. Although Baraka having this 8K transfer, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine something standing up to just how incredible this Blu-ray looks, you know, but still the images are still there. Have you seen the other, the later Godfrey Reggio, the other two Quatsi movies? No, I've always wanted to. I, I'd love to check those out one day. Yeah. How about um, the way Michael Stern's music plays against this? What a strength to the movie that is. 
incredible. I mean, and also like a dream job for someone like me, you know, like to just have some of the most gorgeous imagery you ever put on camera and them to just say, all right, go ahead and make some music, you know, um, it, it's, it's such a wide range of styles and the, the music's like ever changing and just every single piece of it is, is beautiful and fits so well, even though it's all so different. But would it be better if it was Jason singing? Yeah, I'm not singing, Josh. I'm just emoting from right you guys talk i'll i'll keep going no please 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 don't on the rest of the please stop stop singing don't don't do that so no i mean dave have you ever had the chance like have you ever done a music video or something with like nature footage or things like that for your music i have yeah yeah i've done that a couple of times um i i did uh for for a local photographer like a uh like a time lapse type thing and uh that is yeah kind of similar in stylings and i uh i'd love to do more of that kind of stuff just because it's just i don't know it's just so cool you know yeah yeah it is very cool well dave i'll uh, always offer my vocal you know attributes to those if yep. you need yeah you can you can sample that it. and sort of reinterpolate it or something you know yes. make it sound uh loop it i don't know whatever you do with that kind of stuff <laughs> make it sound make it sound good absolutely yeah um i always i always thought it would be cool to see one of these kinds of movies that was completely fake you know like what if there was the ron frick version that took place in like the world of star wars or something like you see, you know, Tauntauns, uh, all of, like a herd of them or something. And then we go to like a droid factory and then the, the primitive rituals of the Ewoks, you know, but it's all approached with this sort of like reverence and with that kind of music. And I don't know, this sounds crazy, but I, that was what I was thinking as I was watching this. You know, over on piecing it together, like a couple of weeks ago, I used Baraka as a puzzle piece for Mad God, the Phil oh, Tippett yeah. stop yeah. motion thing. It, th- that same kind of thing, like where it's like you're just seeing this world and yeah, it's not real, but it's like you're seeing it without much understanding of what the hell's going on. You know, it's just images. Right. You could also use it in the Matrix as Baraka was playing in the background of the Matrix Reloaded in one point one scene. Oh, yeah, I can absolutely oh, see that's cool. the Wachowskis being uh, being influenced by this film. So uh, were there any other particular moments, Jason, that stood out to you that that struck you as beautiful or or powerful? I, I think I mean, you know, uh, at the beginning, you see a primate in a hot spring. And I was <laughs> I was very much into that right there. Um, yeah, it's it's a moment that it's actually kind of funny because, you know, it's obviously this man made hot tub spring whatever and then the the monkey's just chilling there and you see i don't know if it was that i don't know if that was it no that could have just been a natural hot spring that the monkey found i think it was a natural hot spring but yeah it's it's i feel like that's like the iconic image of this film like isn't that like the big one that they usually will show when showcasing the film maybe so i'm not sure yeah i i guess i thought i mean it is a natural hot spring but i thought the particular like pool that he was in or whatever had some sort of brickwork around it that looked man-made but maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong about that but i think either way you expect to see a person in there and you see the monkey and the monkey is very expressive and and he you know gives you the monkey's facial expressions where you can see he's like hanging out there in the in the hot spring and kind of like thinking about what he's going to do the rest of the day or whatever. You could see that on his face. And that was great. Of course, if he could talk, he would just say, I'm a monkey. Yes. That's a callback to jokes that Jason has made since we were in high school, but never goes out of style. 
great, great stuff there. No, there's so much, you know, David mentioned all like the kind of, you know, the factory stuff. Uh, the stuff I hated watching was uh, the chicken farming stuff. You know, that was that oh, was rough yeah. to watch. So. Yeah, although as I was watching that, I was thinking, oh, we're going to get some brutal animal slaughter here coming up. And we don't. I mean, the closest that you get to something really terrible there is they're they're burning the beaks. And I don't I don't know what what the purpose of that is. But obviously, I'm sure that's very unpleasant for the chicks. But otherwise, they're just kind of sliding down these shoots and everything. And uh, it was it was less brutal than I thought it would be. I didn't hate that. And it has you know, those those nice editing moments where he contrasts that with the business people, you know, in and out of the subway being packed in, you know, as tightly as the as the chicks are in the factory. So um, did you hate it just because you felt bad for the animals or did you think it was a poor filmmaking moment? No, I don't think there's any poor filmmaking moments. I'm just anti animal cruelty, Josh. Unbelievable that I have to say that out loud to you. Right. No, I I. I <laughs> understand that i just wondered if you felt like it was something that he should not have shown that's what i no i mean it, it well look if you're talking about this as a meditation that definitely takes you out of the meditation right well you know because you're in this zen peaceful mode and then all of even you know when you see the workers uh, there's a rhythm to it but when you see that you're like uh uh morris he's right <laughs> about racism maybe <laughs> yeah um <laughs> Yeah, well, there's also, of course, we go to Auschwitz and we go to this uh, museum. Oh, yeah, that stuff's rough in, uh, in Cambodia where you right. see the skulls and everything like that, of course. Uh, I, you know, it goes back to that idea of like you can kill a dog on film and people will be upset. But if you kill a uh, human on film, they'll be like, eh, it's a movie, right? So, right, but yeah, right. Auschwitz and you're actually seeing these human skulls piled up in Cambodia. Very rough to watch. It is, but I think that's still, it, it can still be a meditation. I mean, it may be a meditation on something darker at that moment, but it's still, it still is that, that kind of has that meditative tone to it and the, and the music, you know, which could be something that you could just listen to on its own to, to achieve some sort of Zen state. So I, I didn't feel that like that was necessarily out of place to show those things. We never see any violence between humans, like actual, like current violence. He's not shoot, using footage of, of war or anything like that. You know, every, every shot we have of humans is, is, is peaceful. Um, even in the commuters who are stressed out maybe, but they're not fighting with each other or anything like that. People suck, Josh. Right. This is a, a often a, a theme here on our episodes yeah. about people sucking. So yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the, the religious ceremonies, the way that those are all sort of contrasted and, and inner interspersed, I thought was really good. And, as a non-religious person, it, it it was refreshing to see the idea that like, yeah, you know, a lot of Christians or, or fundamentalist Western religion people might look at those tribal ceremonies and think, oh, this is so primitive. But really, there's there's virtually no difference between that and and Christian ceremonies or, or Muslim ceremonies or things like that in, in more, quote, civilized places. So I like that he was showing the continuity there. I thought that was something... Um, is a different kind of message than the environmental message, but also a useful one. Yeah, the message that religion, uh, no matter where you are in the world, has only done good things for people and has never caused any plight or war or hardships or awfulness. I think that's a resounding message, Josh. I, I mean, and I don't think that is the message. I think the message is that maybe we take these things too seriously and, and that 
you know, the fact that we're doing all of those terrible things in the name of religion, when all these religions are, are the distinctions are not important. I think that's more of a message you want to take away from this film. But maybe, uh, maybe you disagree. Well, that's why you make the movies, Josh. All right. So should we rate this? Should we rate this out of five? Uh, I don't even know. Five uh, sweeping vistas of some kind. Sure. If you wanted to go that, I personally would have gone with monkeys in a hot tub, but I'll go with a sweeping Yeah, vista. that's better. No, that's better. Let's rate it out of five, five monkeys, monkeys in a hot, hot tub, tub, which sounds like some sort of weird children's book. Yeah. Uh, as I said in my go for Jason review on Letterboxd, a technical achievement, it's five, like, you know, and it's like 25 from an enjoyment standpoint. Overall, I gave it three. Um, I could, like I said, I could see you loving it. I could see you t- tuning out on it. But um, technically, it's a marvel. It's a three as a movie going experience for me. Yeah, I, I liked it more than that. I feel like even sitting on my couch at home, it was an engaging movie going experience. So I'm going to give it three and a half monkeys in a hot tub. And I think I would give it a higher rating if I had a chance to see it in a theater on a big IMAX type screen and have that immersive experience. But sadly, that was not the case. So uh, Dave, how do you want to rate this? I'm going to go with four monkeys in a hot tub. And hopefully uh, the three of us will get to go watch it in IMAX one day. That would be nice. Yeah, you never know. Maybe they'll do that here someday. Yeah, so I'll let you possible. get me high, but not, not methy Gina, Dave. Man, it's really <laughs> unnecessary uh, insults to Gina here. Not fair. Uh, what's she ever done for any of us? <laughs> mm. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Baraka. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about our documentary pick, which is Ron Frick's film, Baraka. And uh, as we've talked about a bunch, he did many years later in 2011, make a, a sort of a sequel called Samsara, which is a very similar film. And Dave, did you see that in the theater when that came out? I did. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got to see it. I think it was at Village Square, but uh, yeah, no, it was a really cool experience. I, I didn't like it as much as Baraka, but it was really good. Yeah. I Like I said, I remember watching it at home and being skeptical and enjoying it and probably thinking I should have taken the time to go see it in the theater that I obviously had not. But and uh, Josh, speaking of uh, humanity's uh, brutality to humanity, Ron mm-hmm. Frick was one of the directors of photography on uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. So he too has brutalized humanity in some ways. Oh, that's really very harsh judgment of the Star Wars movie, which is one of you know is a is a better movie of this the prequels. But yes, he shot some footage. I think it's a volcano uh, that they used in that film to give it some uh, added reality, I guess, because I, you know everything in that film is green screen pretty much. So uh, I guess they they managed to throw in a real location. But I'm sort of surprised that he hasn't done that more for right. you know yeah, big big films you know to like someone like Douglas Trumbull or uh or like Phil Tippett you know talking about Mad God who has these this kind of artistic specialty that could be made use of in a major studio film but maybe he doesn't want to or I don't know his credits are very very sparse I'm not sure what he spends his time doing I know you would think like Netflix would be like hey Frick go uh go Baraka us a series or something right like, yeah just just turn it in whenever you want we'll just put it on you know yeah well it's especially surprising because there was like a moment where we were getting a lot of these kinds of you know documentaries more with voiceover but like you know like the planet earth series and all those kind of things and like yeah why 
this guy hasn't really worked on any of them is kind of surprising. Right. And I think even though this doesn't have narration or on-screen titles or things like that, the style of this film certainly has influenced nature documentaries, more mainstream stuff like Planet Earth. And, you know, the the way that this is edited or the the sort of wide overview of humanity and of the world that that's presented in this film is certainly something that we see more in nature documentaries now. Um, you know, we talked about Godfrey Reggio, who he had worked with uh, earlier. The third movie in the Quatsi trilogy uh, came out after this. And then Reggio has made one other similar kind of film called Visitors. And I haven't seen any of those films, but um, certainly would be curious to check them out. One thing that I have seen is there's a Russian filmmaker named Viktor Kosakovsky who makes similar kinds of films. Um, and he made a movie a few years ago called Aquarella, which is also a narrative and dialogue-free documentary with footage of, of water in various forms and ice and uh, rivers and oceans and has a much more clear sort of environmental message to it. And uh, in contrast to the sort of zen-like soundtrack to this film, it is soundtracked with uh, extreme heavy metal music. And it's... Uh, it's interesting. I wrote, I think at the time on Letterboxd, I wrote, I, I can't tell if this is mesmerizing or boring. And there's definitely like a fine, fine line there. But he's clearly heavily, heavily influenced by Ron Frick hmm. and also made a movie more popular called Gunda from, I think, a, a year or two Last ago. Last year was, or two, yeah. Yeah, that was about a pig. So, which I didn't see. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen either of those films. I heard great things about Gunda, but yeah, I haven't seen it yet. You're really yeah. reaching here, Josh. He's got nothing to do with this movie, and you're now talking about his films. I disagree. I think this movie is clearly a major, major influence on him. His legacy. And these well, no, I are... get it from the water one, but now you're like, he also made Gunda. So, you know. Well, which is another movie that has no narrative and no narration and no titles and is just like, here is sort of a, a an unvarnished look at nature. So, but I haven't seen that one. So maybe you're, maybe it doesn't uh, doesn't hold up. But I feel like there's a lot of movies like this that are the idea of of throwing various things together without the context. I mean, you could even talk about Kristen Johnson's movie Camera Person, which you know has dialogue, has people talking, but is a, a sort of series of vignettes that she doesn't give you a context for, and that you have to kind of make the connections for yourself in your mind. Um, to understand what she's getting across and the cumulative power of it. So I think there's a lot of different kinds of documentaries that are influenced by his style, but Jason doesn't agree. No, no, I'm, I'm cool with it, Josh. Okay, thanks. I mean, we can see this in Herzog too. I think in some of his later films, obviously he's known for all the narration that he does, but you know, movies like the one he made about volcanoes or the movie about like uh, meteor fragments or whatever, where he kind of, jumps around the world and shows you images of different uh, places that connect thematically, I think there's a, an influence going on there as well. Okay. All right. Jason's gone. He's, he's, he's tapped out. <laughs> he's tapped out on Baraka and experimental film. So Jason, what is your favorite Stan Brackage movie? <laughs> the one where you get those images and you're not exactly sure what they are, but you're like, they're somewhere in nature. But like, is this film kind of manipulated or what's going on? That that one I like a yeah, lot. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I like that one too. <laughs> All right. So that's Baraka. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Yeah, social media. Go for Jason. It's good. 
as a letterboxing is bad as a website. Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. And we're at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Uh, my website, joshbellhateseverything.com. Also not that great. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook. At Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd if you want to see my uh, very insightful comments on movies there. And check out our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And if you want to check out my music, which of course is very inspired by stuff like what Michael Stearns is doing here, check out ByDavidRosen.com for all my albums and my film scoring stuff. And can we see that uh, music video that you were talking about there as yeah, well? Yeah, it's called it's called The Other Side, and uh, there's a link to it on my website. Yeah, check that out. So what do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, I'm not going to say it. You're okay. going to say it. I'm going to say it, okay, because it's my pick for 1992. Another experimental documentary. It is Wayne's World, <laughs> the Saturday Night Live adaptation. So could not be more different, but should also be fun to talk about. So tune in next time for Wayne's World. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.